Welcome to Common Home Conversations Beyond UN75, a series by the Planetary Podcast. In Common Home Conversations, you will hear from leading global experts on how the proposal of recognizing the existence of an intangible global common without borders can change our relationship with our planet. The Common Home of Humanity has proposed an ambitious new global pact for the environment. The adverse effects of climate change span across borders and beyond territories. Recognizing the Earth system as a common heritage of humankind is the first step in restoring a stable climate, a visible manifestation of a well-functioning Earth system. This proposal's cascading effects would be systemic and tremendously impact international relations and economics, opening the doors to restoring a well-functioning Earth system. Common Home Conversations is the place to discuss a new social contract between society, economy, and the Earth system. Now, here is your host, founder and CEO of the Planetary Press, Kimberly White. Hello, and welcome to Common Home Conversations. Today, we are joined by Janine Yazi, co-convener of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group on Sustainable Development. Thank you for joining us, Janine. Please tell us more about your work as co-convener of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group on Sustainable Development of the UN High-Level Political Forum on the 2030 Sustainable Development Goals. Yes, International Indian Treaty Council and Tepteba Foundation really organized themselves to get involved with the beginning of the discussions around the Sustainable Development Goals. And one of our our colleagues, Galena and Roberto Barrero, were really at the forefront of ensuring in the negotiations around the development of the SDGs that Indigenous peoples were included. And so because of that work and the, the recognition of the shift from the Millennium Development Goals to the Sustainable Development Goals was a shift that was meant to increase participation of, of stakeholders and other civil society organizations. It became very apparent for our, our organizations and our two colleagues that we had to be participating in the development of um, the metrics and, and development of the processes for meeting the sustainable development goals. And so because of them, Indigenous peoples are mentioned throughout different aspects of the goals and the metrics that were created to measure progress towards implementation. And Tepteba Foundation and International Indian Treaty Council became recognized as the co-conveners of the Indigenous Peoples Major Groups. So we're, we're one of nine civil society organizations and major groups um, that are recognized and that engage with the high-level political forum on the SDGs. And uh, through that work, we ensure the participation of Indigenous representatives from all of the seven social cultural regions uh, recognized by the UN, and we facilitate their participation in expert group meetings and high-level discussions during the HLPF, as well as all of the other side events that happen with other mechanisms. And in this manner, 
We ensure that the countries that do submit voluntary national reports and the countries that are developing processes and mechanisms nationally to address the the goals outlined in the 2030 agenda are also being held accountable to the indigenous peoples that reside within their their territories and it's it's been <laughs> it's been a lot of slow work for a while i think it's taken a while f- for this mechanism to really find its footing and for the high level political forum to really be structured and organized in a way to make it meaningful. And it's been an uphill battle to really increase and advocate for meaningful participation in the actual decision-making processes of the high-level political forum. But just in the past three years that I've been involved in learning about the history and the development of the Indigenous Peoples Major Group and our involvement with the SDGs, um, we're seeing a great shift of the streams of work, of the way that the SDGs are being picked up more and more by different countries and even how the the work, all of the streams of work are being collaborated across the different UN mechanisms. So it's an exciting time. Obviously with COVID-19, it made our, our issues much more difficult to get addressed. One of the things we've learned as being co-conveners of the Indigenous People Major Group is that so many of our Indigenous peoples and in uh, the communities that they come from lack access to critical community infrastructure, um, especially internet and cell service. And so with the COVID-19 pandemic, we faced some extraordinary barriers and challenges to and keeping the keeping momentum behind increasing meaningful participation in the high-level political forum and in the expert group meetings on the different sustainable development goals. So we've been working very hard to get resources, financial or otherwise, to some of our most vulnerable communities um, to somehow support them getting hooked up to the internet or to a service that can allow them to continue the, the work that we've been doing collectively across our different regions. And it's it's through that collaboration that um, we really find our strength as Indigenous peoples. You know, like all of our all of our communities are on the front lines of the impacts of climate change, of environmental degradation, of unsustainable development and development schemes that are harmful to our ecosystem functions and to the continuance of our traditional life ways. And so by by being serving as co-convener, we really serve as like the facilitators and the of organizing our movement and advocating collectively for our rights in these spaces. Well, you're doing such important work. It's fantastic. And like you said, indigenous peoples are on the front lines of climate change. We're seeing it impact all corners of our planet. Can you tell us how climate change is affecting the Navajo Nation and what you see in your community? Absolutely. This has really been the core of my work. I've always been a social justice advocate. I think, you know, <laughs> being Indigenous and born into this world, it, it's kind of a path that is already laid for you because all, all our communities are always dealing with layers of challenges and uh, layers of systemic oppression that very much inform our lived experience. And so um, in 2011, when I was faced with having to make several 
several career choices. I was volunteering at the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues and came across a report. It was a climate risk assessment report, and it was done with as a collaboration between a number of scientists, and it was specifically looking at the risk that we're going to be faced by the Navajo Nation uh, in the Southwest United States um, due to the impacts of climate change. And reading that report really scared me. I was a new mother. Uh, I was a, a young professional uh, at this crossroads of sorts. And the report really laid out and connected a lot of the things that we've that I knew and have experienced in my communities, like the loss of water sources, the increased desertification, the loss of vegetation, and then how these cumulative impacts were increasing the concentration of environmental toxins that have been accumulated over generations of extractive industry operations in our communities. And in my communities in particular, we were, we've been struggling with a legacy of uranium mining and the impacts of the 1979 Church Rock uranium mill tilling spill. And so um, seeing this report and seeing the predictions that by 2017, there would be a dramatic shift because of the lack of availability of water and that those people who were continuing a lot of our traditional life ways of of sheep herding, livestock rearing, uh, maintaining our traditional food systems would find a lot of those activities were, were, would be no longer viable just because of like the impacts of, of, increased desertification um, due to climate change in our territories. And so that was like a wake-up call and really brought me back home. And I was so sure that when I came back home that everyone would be talking about these issues. Everyone would be, you know, trying to to build solutions around how do we create more effective mitigation and adaptation solutions and uh, yeah, that wasn't the case when, when we moved back. Um, my nation was deeply involved in a long, what's been a very long battle for securing our nation's water rights. And so we really came back to, with, with the intention of addressing climate change impacts and issues, but really landing in the intersection of working in the nexus of water, energy, and food systems, and um, focusing particularly on helping to break this data and bring these resources that were available in other places to communities in a way that could help build capacity and empower the type of holistic planning that would allow us to learn from our experiences in our communities, prioritize around a shared vision for our resources and our communal well-being um, to create climate adaptation mitigation plans and to also advocate for uh, stronger protections for our water rights. And it's it's been an ongoing battle since then. With COVID-19, we've seen um, how precarious our water situation is, as well as our food security situation is. Part of the reason why we were not able to stem community spread is because a lot of our communities still lack access to clean drinking water and communities that were well dependent, that had a communal well system, saw those well resources dry up quicker and sooner in in the beginning of our spring and summer season, which led to people crowding around surrounding wells and, and overusing those. And so we, we saw really the vulnerabilities of our communities on all fronts with, with COVID-19, but also how the pandemic 
uh, vulnerabilities to the pandemic, the source of this virus, and and all of these other issues that we're facing with um, are all interconnected with the impacts of climate change and how our solutions need to also be interconnected and holistic in order to address them. I like that, interconnected solutions. As you said, with COVID, we're seeing how the environment is not a standalone issue. It is connected to the social issues. It's connected to, you know, the political issues, security, everything. So it's important that our solutions encompass this. And you have discussed the importance of traditional knowledge systems. Can you elaborate on what traditional knowledge is and how it can help combat the climate and biodiversity crises? Absolutely. We just finished a webinar with some amazing um, traditional knowledge holders with um, that was hosted by Grand Canyon Trust around this particular issue and how it pertains to management of public lands. And so I'm going to kind of be repeating and relying on the work of my colleagues around this issue because I don't consider myself a traditional knowledge holder. That is a, a, a unique type of expertise that takes a lifetime to achieve. And so uh, one of the things that we want to emphasize and that we we were really we found really important in that discussion is really emphasizing the the complexity around traditional knowledge systems and how right now because there are different forms of recognition of the value of traditional knowledge, particularly as it pertains to traditional ecological practices that have been shown and proven to be very successful at maintaining and preserving biological diversity, there's a there's an attempt to try to clearly define what traditional knowledge is that is actually very harmful to fully understanding and respecting the rights of Indigenous peoples and preserving and defining that for themselves and um, creating the processes by which to transfer that knowledge uh, between generations to the next generation. And so for, for us, the simplest way to kind of demystify what traditional knowledge is uh, for many of our communities is that it's a it's a way of living, it's a way of being, and a way of knowing that has been accumu- accumulated over generations of our people's experience in and place based and developing place based practices and uh, ceremonies, languages, and and accumulated knowledge that is rooted in understanding how to maintain a holistic balance in our communities with all the life forms around us. And like for that, it's a particular way of approaching and understanding our relationships to other forms of life and to um, the basic elements of life uh, so that we can achieve a way of living that centers our responsibility to maintaining healthy relationships with all of those things. And so um, it's been difficult for a lot of our advocacy and our movement generation because our rights are constantly under threat, especially our rights to our lands, territories, and resources. But in our ways of knowing and in our in our knowledge systems and in our languages, we don't have a concept for rights that that is... Um, that complements like the legal framework and the the legal understanding or the, even the academic understanding of rights in the Western world. But we have we have used that language as a tool 
to protect what we have what we have left of our traditional communities and of our our life ways and practices but a lot of our work centering around traditional knowledge is really about just honoring and restoring our responsibilities to to the earth to our communities to each other um, to all all forms of life and to maintaining and respecting the elements that are fundamental to preserving life on this planet <laughs> I don't know if that's a, if even that was successful at simplifying it. Uh, we had like an hour-long conversation around this, um, and I think it's really important because in what I find most beautiful about tr- not not trying to tie down what traditional knowledge is into a concrete definition is that it leaves room for recognition of of all of the different ways of living that people and cultures around the world hold. And it also maintains a, a, a an openness to recognize that at one point or another, every culture was connected to place and that Every culture has has uh, in it a history of of what those responsibilities were to place, and I think that one it definitely um, helps reveal and respect that indigenous peoples, even though we do a lot of work collectively, especially at the in the international level, to advance our, our shared rights, our shared concerns, that we also come from very different cultures, very different language groups, very different experiences of colonization even. And, and yet somehow there's an element in all of our knowledge systems that uh, allows us to find unity. And that unity is often rooted in our respect for the the earth, our respect for all life forms, and our uh, commitment to uh, restoring our responsibilities to life. I love what you said there, how even though it's so many different cultures, you are able to find unity in your respect for our planet. Now, many people don't realize that there are 476 million indigenous peoples worldwide, and that they safeguard 80% of our global biodiversity, yet they are often given a limited role or left out entirely of multilateral discussions on environmental governance. How do you think a global pact for the environment can help solve this, and what role do you think it should play moving forward? I think the global pact for the environment has a lot of potential to bringing us together as humans, as humans who recognize that we have a shared home, that we have a shared invested interests in preserving that home and preserving all of the wonderful gifts and that come from the the diversity of ecosystem functions that this home provides and that in that unity we can break through all of the noise and all of the different aspects of division and of difference to find common ground and to find a common purpose and restoring our shared responsibility to to all that's been gifted to us. And in, in that global pack, showing that commitment to that shared future and, and restoring what those responsibilities look like and, and sharing knowledge with each other and, and building that pathway. We're in a very precarious moment. In, in human history, you know, like I think a lot of times we take for granted with, like, with access to so many distractions through technology, we, we take for granted the preciousness of this moment and how 
what a gift it is to be alive in this point in time, to be able to reflect upon the generations of, of history that has for many people been mostly bad, but has also um, really showed the strength and resiliency and capacity of forgiveness and of survival and of being able to thrive in the midst of overwhelming obstacles for so many so many people around the globe and 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 being in this moment and holding that reflection and restoring our shared understanding of the true history of how we've gotten to this moment to recognize how a lot of our most problematic patterns and behaviors and institutions that have generated and maintained um, systemic inequality across our globe have all been man-made and that we are, are being gifted this time right now to benefit from how, as a globe, we are more interconnected than ever. We have broken down a lot of barriers of communication and of, of connection. And, and have really been gifted a moment of pause in the midst of this pandemic to recognize how much we can shift our learned behaviors and shift the way we look at and value resources and shift our dependency on those resources. And uh, I think with all of this, if we if we can continue to build off of the momentum and continue to maintain focus on a shared vision um, that can be offered through through a, a global pack like this, um, we can find all how to harness all of those beautiful gifts while also find like nurturing pathways of healing among all of our different peoples, so that we can set a trajectory forward to co-create a future that benefits all life. And, and now more than ever is, is the time for that type of global pact. And I, and I think the power of it is obvious in terms of what we're dealing with right now and where we need to go and, and the type of commitment, collaboration, partnership, and, and social network that needs to be developed to get us there. Absolutely. As tragic and heartbreaking as this pandemic has been, it also presents an opportunity for us to build back better, to build a fairer, more just society. It allows us to refocus on what we need to do, especially with climate change. And right now our emissions are down, so this is an opportunity to do that. Now, you have been working with the Right Energy Partnership to expand access to renewable energy while protecting indigenous rights. And I found this really interesting. Can you tell us more about this initiative and what you're hoping to accomplish? Yes, absolutely. So the Right Energy Partnership was developed because, you know, and, and we see this with different with different global efforts and with different attempts to build solutions. A lot of times our our enthusiasm and and the resources to that are directed to solutions are often market based and are still center the the need to profit or to, to make a profit off of especially energy projects. And so as a result, even though the world recognizes that we need to shift away from greenhouse gas emissions and the, the 
energy industries that have contributed to climate change. In that shift, we saw that many of our indigenous communities uh, and indigenous peoples were still having their lands, territories, and resources threatened because of large hydroelectric dam projects or large-scale solar projects that were being built on their traditional lands and territories. And there, there's also the component about the just the energy fuel cycle when it comes to renewable energy in general as well. You know, like a solar pa- panels are not themselves a solution to a lot of our most egregious forms of environmental violence. We still have to mine precious minerals. We still have to mine lithium for the batteries. And a lot of these mining activities are still occurring on lands that were traditionally and customarily held and maintained by indigenous peoples in Latin America, in Africa, and in Australia. And so when when we, in our collaboration and bringing indigenous peoples from different parts of the globe into shared spaces, into shared strategy, it became very apparent that Indigenous peoples in developed nations who were very much trying to help facilitate and take part in the transition to renewable energy also didn't want to be responsible for the continued exploitation of Indigenous peoples' lands in these other areas. And then we also uh, started having conversations around waste that is generated from renewable energy projects. Uh, a lot of people don't know that, you know, solar panels, once they're broken, are, are no longer functioning, come, become a form of toxic waste that is very hazardous. And so uh, we started to see this pattern in, in renewable energy development where we were replicating a lot of the harmful processes and practices that make energy development unsustainable in general. And so our, our solution to try to hold ourselves accountable and in, in the renewable energy projects that we, we uh, supported was to really think about and develop a rights-based approach to renewable energy development that took into consideration all of these things. And so it's a partnership that's based off of, again, that co-creation of knowledge, of understanding about all of the things that we need to be aware of and the shift to renewable energy so that uh, we can can mitigate or, or completely eliminate um, harmful practices that can be replicated even when we're shifting to uh, cleaner forms of energy. And, and in that process um, of, of sharing this knowledge and building like this knowledge exchange platform and of being able to tap into uh, international resources for renewable energy projects in developing nations, we're able to take a different approach to how these projects are designed and developed and implemented and how they're maintained over time. Um, and, and using these examples as a way to address and bring clarity around what best practices are for all renewable projects to institute these types of standards and these approaches so that we can all be part of building better solutions and not just taking for granted um, market-based approaches that, they, that themselves are unsustainable. So the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples was adopted at the UN General Assembly in 2007. The Declaration confirms the rights of Indigenous Peoples to self-determination and recognizes subsistence rights and rights to lands, territories, and resources, as well as effective participation in all matters that concern them, and yet, the Declaration is not legally binding. 
Do you think the innovative legal framework proposed by the Common Home of Humanity would help resolve this and protect and bolster Indigenous rights? Okay, yes, yes, because uh, I, I do think that we have very much needed a new legal framework in general to help deal with the issues that we face as human beings uh, on this planet. And a lot of the issues that we and the threats to Indigenous people's rights come from domestic policy and from particular state histories and, and interests and in maintaining um, systems of coloni colonization and settler colonialism in these territories. And it, we have known through our, our years of advocacy that operating under those state apparatuses is enormously difficult. And the, the biggest progress that we have made has been when Indigenous peoples went to these international mechanisms um, and, and fought for the, the development of the Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and have implemented that across different programs of work and across different UN mechanisms and and having it recognized in different ways and in these different streams of work. That has been phenomenal and helping us then bring that language back to our local projects and finding ways to push through our, our to circumvent a lot of the um, domestic legal barriers that we face. And so I don't, I see this as being that same initiative and that's having that same type of promise, but on a larger scale, because I really appreciate how uh, this initiative in general is centering and, and recognizing that the geopolitical boundaries that are separating our nations and our communities um, is part of the problem that needs to be addressed and overcome in order to create a shared sense of commitment and responsibility responsibility to all of our global ecosystem functions because when when we see a lot of if if people can read more and learn more about the particular indigenous people's struggles that are on these borders of these countries and these nations um, i think that it would help reveal how how problematic these structures are. Uh, for example, with the building of the border wall between the U.S. and, and Mexico, the resistance to that is a resistance to continue to protect vital and precious ecosystems that are very vulnerable to climate change, but are extremely vulnerable to uh, the development that's being proposed with this border wall. And, and, and that vulnerability and those threats have a long history um, with the development of the U.S.-Mexico border. And we have several indigenous communities that have always transcended those borders. And so the introduction of the social political issues and challenges, the introduction of the criminalization from the militarization of our borders, um, the introduction of the environmental dis destruction and degradation that comes from disrupting the activities in those ecosystems along the the border and brings in harmful forms of development have all created this effect over time of, of threatening some of our most um, precious natural resources and ecosystem functions that are a vital part of the health of these transnational rivers, such as the Colorado River. And we've, you know, for generations, this lifeline, which is considered the lifeline of the entire Southwest United States, is also the lifeline for northern Mexico and, and for years has not even 
even reached the the Gulf the way that it has historically has done. And so there's a lot of our our major river systems, our major watersheds, our our major forests, they transcend these national boundaries. And we have to have a shared commitment, responsibility, and shared protections for for those responsibilities to ensure that we're we're taking care of these vital places, these sacred places, in a way that helps us mitigate and adapt to the impacts of climate change and in a way that helps center alternative pathways to development that are more sustainable. And to do that, one of the things we need is an, an entirely new legal framework that allows a, allows us to manifest those, those types of solutions and protect those types of solutions from the state and corporate interests that for years have, have dissected our lands and only value the resources found within them in terms of profit, monetary profit. I think as as humanity, we're at a place where uh, we are just now evolving our consciousness and coming to a shared understanding of the need to build greater alliances and greater partnerships to deal with all of the challenges that we face. And uh, this global pact, the the new legal framework that's being proposed, all of this, I think, is a, is a phenomenal step forward towards realizing that solution. Absolutely. You make some great points, Janine. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? I feel like there's so much to talk about, um, but I really do think that there's a lot of great work being done by scientists, by international organizations, and by indigenous peoples all around the globe. Um, so I'm always encouraging people that to get involved in initiatives like this and to support initiatives like this to arm themselves with that local knowledge wherever they're from. Get to know their indigenous peoples that are within that traditionally called those territories home, get to understand the history of colonization, get acquainted with the legal frameworks that are preventing holistic approaches and solutions to climate change and to renewable energy development, understand the importance of rights-based solutions and how um, centering human rights across all of our communities is a benefit for all of us. And then, yeah, and and use all of that knowledge and all that energy to help contribute to initiatives like this. Um, because every person, every no matter their expertise, no matter what they bring to the table, no matter their lived experience, I think every person counts in the development of these solutions. And, and we need everyone to, to do that work. All right, and there you have it. Although we face unprecedented circumstances with the climate crisis and the COVID-19 pandemic, history has shown us that humanity has the strength and resilience to overcome these overwhelming obstacles. By coming together to protect our common home with a global pact for the environment, we can co-create a future that benefits all. The legal framework proposed by the Common Home of Humanity can help us to deal with the issues we face together. That is all for today, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Common Home Conversations Beyond UN75. Please subscribe, share, and be sure to tune in next week to continue the conversation with our special guest, Professor Kim Song-Yup, founder of the Coalition for Our Common Future and the president of the Jeju Research Institute. And visit us at www.theplanetarypress.com for more episodes and the latest news in sustainability, climate change, and the environment.